0: All right, let's do this. I know it's Father's Day and the the rule of thumb is you have to come up with some sermon dealing with dads, but we all know who you are, what to do. Like, you just look at me as an example, as a perfect father and follow my lead, you'll have no problems in life, right? You all met my kids and know that's not true. So anyway, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week because I think it's crucial that we get an understanding of what we're doing here. The whole purpose of this series is though we get an understanding of what God has said and how we survive in this world. And obviously, I'm not talking physically, although that could come to the forefront of this before much longer. As uh, most of you know, most of the parts of the world are not so friendly to Christianity. In fact, they're very hostile towards it. If a Muslim gives their life to Christ, they put their life on the line. Uh, same in China, same in a lot of places. So we've got it pretty cushy over here. And if we want to, that to continue to be cushy, then maybe we should think about our political uh, alignments and what we do there, because it's very important that we understand what's happening. But to be truthful with you, if it was a little less cushy, maybe we'd be a little more serious about it. Because we take for granted that we can come together every Sunday freely and openly and just get together and hang out and do our thing in any day of the week that we want to. Because a lot of parts of the world, they don't have that. They have to go underground. They have to do things. They put their lives on the line by congregating together. And so maybe if we had a little bit more backlash, maybe we would take it a little more serious. But be that as it may, we've been focused on this idea of being equipped. And we've been focused on the different aspects of the armors out of Ephesians 6. Now, being equipped means that we're supplied with everything that we need. Fully equipped, fully able, fully capable, fully trained. That's important as well. Because we are certainly talking about spiritual warfare. And the one thing you don't do, if you're a military person, if you're an officer, my brother used to be a cop, um, you know, any of this kind of stuff, they don't hand you all the tools and say, okay, here you go, go figure it out. Good luck to you. No, the big thing in the, the headlines right now is the tasers, right, because of what happened in Atlanta. Now, my brother was a, uh, one of the officers that actually trained people on tasing, how to do it. Why you did it, and one of the number one rules before they would let you have one, is you had to be tased. Now, yeah, they had to, because you had to know what that felt like, and the dis- like how it just knocked you on your tail. Because one of the things that he always taught is that if a perpetrator gets your taser, it will disable you, and he can take your weapon. Like, you needed to be aware of that. Now, when he was going to get tased... I actually called his commanding officer and volunteered my time to go and pull the trigger. I said, I am more than happy to help. Something goes south, he's not going to sue me. They did not take me up on that offer, but it was, it was there. So, we've got to understand, like, why, it's not just having the stuff, but how do we use it? What do we do with it? It doesn't do you any good to have a gun if you don't know how to shoot it. Like, here's a little tip for you guys. Now, as you know, I shoot a gun about twice a year, both of which are trap shooting. And the one thing that I've picked up on is you don't get better at something doing it twice a year. But for whatever reason, standing in the gang invites me to go along. It must be my witty banter. I don't know what it is. It's certainly not my shooting skills. But there were two things that I learned in the first time that I was doing this. Number one, apparently shotguns have a safety. And if you don't turn the safety off, no fire come out of gun. So I said pull. I still don't know why we say pull, but that's what everybody says, so I did it. And I pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. So I said pull again. Like a stupid gun is broken. (laughs) Nothing happened. And then maybe it was the Holy Spirit. I looked down like, what's this button do? Oh, let's try this a third time. It worked. That was lesson one. You know what lesson two is? they don't shoot well if you don't put a shotgun shell in it I forgot it's not a good day for me you see having the the, the tools but not knowing how to use them two-part process that's what we're trying to get to. when we look at 2nd Timothy we've been in this all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's what we do as a church society today. Somebody comes in and they get born again. They give their life to Christ. Yay, we're excited. Then we hand them a Bible and we say, here you go. Good luck. Or we start a discipleship class. Or we start some sort of a program to try to attract people in. Or whatever the case may be. We don't teach people how to rightly divide this. We don't teach people the construct of this. We don't teach people the history of this. We just say, here you go. And because of that, you know what happens? We come up with some pretty wild ideas. We come up with Bible verses that are becoming our favorite, and we put them on pillows, post them on Facebook, and and nine times out of ten, if you read the context of it, it doesn't mean exactly what you thought it meant. Because why? We've never been taught to rightly divide the word. We just kind of go with what we've heard. The other problem we have, if you grew up in a Christian home, you have by osmosis adopted your family's faith most of the time. You don't really know why it is you believe what you believe. You just kind of always believed it, therefore I'm just going to go with it. That doesn't work very well either. Or we go to a church and because we go to church every Sunday, like, well, I'm growing spiritually. Things must be good. I mean, the problem we have today is really surrounded around this. We would not be arguing and dealing with the stuff we're doing if we ran on a biblical worldview. Now, let me ask you this, if this is a fair statement or not. One of the problems we're having in America right now is fatherless homes. There's a question, there's a problem. And we've got this whole idea of free sex and open up, and, you know, it's kind of like the hippie movement all over again, right? Some of y'all remember that. The hippie movement, not necessarily all the other part. You You were alive for it. Let me clarify this just a bit. I'm not looking for any hands to get raised or you know anything like that but y'all were around some of us were not we got our own issues to deal with but this free love movement. and so one of the arguments that I've I've made with people is like could we at least agree on this that if sex was held to the confines of a husband and a wife at least from that standpoint we would eliminate a lot of the other issues STD's abortion like we would eliminate if we just put it inside the confines Of what God has said. Would that not, in and of itself, eliminate all the other issues? Of course it would. But what do we do? We chase after the symptoms, the after effects. We're trying to fix these. Let's go back over here. Let's get to the heart of the problem. You see, symptoms point to an underlying cause. We don't treat symptoms, we treat the cause. If we treat the cause, the symptoms will go away on their own. That brings us back to the whole point of this a biblical worldview having an idea of what God has said on any subject and any aspect of life so that you can rightly divide good from evil, right from wrong, truth from untruth. And we're going to go through that today, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 right now. We've been in this quite a bit, we're not quite done yet. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rules of the darkness of this age, and a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, we have gone through each piece. Look at the armor. We've gone through this, we've talked about the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the shield, and we have been on now, and of course the shoes, but we've been on the sword. Every part of these is crucial, but all of it locks into that belt. It's all about truth. If you cannot distinguish truth from non-truth, you got a problem. What do we call that today? Fake news. Right? You may use that term once or twice today. You know, what I want to tell you is when I'm discipling young people, when I say young, I mean young in the Lord, not necessarily teenager, but I mean somebody who's just given their life to Christ, the first sign that we're on a good path is when they hear something and they may don't know if it's right, wrong, they're not quite sure, but it throws up a red flag, like something seems off with that. We're on a good track if we can get to that point. I wish I could get everyone to that point. It's like, I know this is what's being said, but it doesn't pass the test. Now, when you're dealing with teenagers, you don't want to be sniffing nothing, believe me. But it just something's not right. If I can get somebody to that point, then we can begin to drill down to see what is going on. But it all comes back to truth. Now, in verse 17, because this is our focus, it talks about taking the helmet of salvation, crucial, protects the mind, protects your head, if you will. Very ornate, very beautiful piece of, of armor, and it was protecting us from all the bad things that were happening, could be seen from a long ways away because those Roman soldiers had those giant plumes on there, kind of showing off a little bit, if you will. But the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've looked at multiple swords here, right? There are five swords that the Roman soldiers use. All five of them are crucial. The one that we really focused our attention on was this one because this is the one um, that, was, uh, that Paul is speaking of here. At least that is the Greek word, makiela. I'm saying that correctly. I did a podcast with a guy just this week, and he, he was going through a bunch of Greek words. He understands Greek, and I do not. Okay, so he is smarter than I am. And he's like, he asked me, he's like, how do you pronounce that word? I'm like, I am a country bumpkin. I can't pronounce anything in English half the time. Why are you asking me this? Anyway, so we're focused on this idea, the crucialness of understanding. Now, that sword is a replica. They, they change over time, they make them. But it always had a bend on it. It would always curve up at the tip and it would be sharpened just around the top part. This thing was brutal. The main thing about it, that what, what they liked about it, is that they would insert it, they would twist it, and when they pulled it out, because of that curve in it, it would pull the entrails out. Now, they may not die immediately, but they're going to die soon. It was, and that's the picture that Paul's painting here. And so we looked at this idea, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, remember, we said the belt of truth. Is the word of God. Your word is truth. It's not like these are just ancillary words that are being thrown around. Everything always goes back to the word. Hebrews 4 12. The word of God is living and it's powerful. Is that true? Okay, so why do we not turn there? Why do we not start there? If it is living and powerful, why do we not use it? So it's living, powerful. It's sharper than any two edged sword. Same word piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and its discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So this is what I've told you guys last week, and this is what the Lord revealed to me. This word being the sword is the filter of which every thought must pass in order to have the mind of Christ. In other words, you're going to have all sorts of thoughts. Good ones, you're going to have some bad ones. Does that mean they're evil? No. Not necessarily but it doesn't make them God-type thoughts. You see, I want to align myself with God's Word, with God's mind, with God's process. I want to align myself there. I don't want to come up with my own fanciful ideas. He has established this for a purpose. It is so that we have a basis to compare something with. I had a young man come into my office this week had what I believe was a spiritual dream. Maybe God trying to get his attention. And he tells me the, the, the whole dream and what's going on, and he said, uh, he's like, what does it mean? I said, well, I can't answer that. Because there's no cheat sheet that says, oh, when you see the butterfly, it means this. When you see a unicorn, it means this. There's, there's none of that that exists. There are people that make that stuff up. But there's no standard for me to compare it to. But I said, but I, we can speculate a little bit. Let's look at this. Now, sometimes you have dreams, although they may seem spiritual, are a result of you watching TV too late at night, or eating a bad slice of pizza, as if there's such a thing as a bad slice of pizza. But I mean, you know what I'm saying. You know, like, there are things that happen, so not everything is a spiritual one. In this case, I think it was trying to get his attention, but be that as it may, I cannot say that for certain. What I can say is, I want to be Aligned with this. Anything, and this isn't just talking about spiritual discernment. In other words, okay, somebody's making a claim about the Bible, a claim about God. Whether we agree theologically, you know, what does it say? I'm talking about things that aren't necessarily theologically sound. What do we do with the world we're in? There's a lot of chaos out there, y'all. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty uh, in a good spot, let's put it that way. We don't have a lot that goes on here. I mean, the poor newspaper writers. What are they writing about? Oh, someone's tomatoes popped up. I mean, what else do they have to write about? There ain't nothing going on here. We're not exciting. But you go off into the cities. I got friends of mine that were down in Tulsa last night. They, some of them went to the rally showing me some of the stuff that went, went on down there. It's like, whoo, you have fun with that. I'll stay up here in no man's land. You know, but... Those ideas, those concepts, do they line up scripturally? So there are a lot of ideas that doesn't make them good. So this is what is used to separate your thoughts, the soul, and the spirit, and God's thoughts. You see, God speaks through your spirit, but your mind must be renewed. When you're born again, your spirit is recreated into a new creature. But however, your mind is not. It is still the devil's playground. That is your responsibility to do that. It separates the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we have to understand that. Look at uh, Philippians 1, verse 9. I read this last week. And this I pray, that you, uh, your love may abound still more and more uh, in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So what are we talking about? Discernment. Separating the good from the bad, approving of the things that are excellent. So, in retrospect, that means we disapprove of the things that are not. Okay? Who defines what's excellent? It's not you and me. Okay? Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Watch what he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they came and, testing him, said to him, Would you show us a sign from heaven? He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather because the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather because the sky is red and threatening. You hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. He's scolding them. Why? Because the signs of the times were laid out in Scripture. They are teachers of Israel. He got on Nicodemus in John 3, saying, well, what do I have to do? And he says, well, you must be born again. He's like, wait a minute, i got to get back in my mom's womb. And he says, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? He's scolding him. He's getting on him because he should know. And then we read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, and he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, what are we talking about here? The natural man, your flesh, your body, your soul, unrenewed, The things of God makes no sense. When we hear somebody gets cancer, our mind feels sorry for them. We hear somebody that's going through a rough time financially, our mind feels sorry for them. But our spirit's like, we go pray for them. We go give to them. We go take care of them. You can't make your mortgage, I will. Like, we do the things, and I'm not talking about someone being lazy, don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about somebody just going through a rough spot. I mean, why do you think that we support these ministries, not just as a church, but a lot of us individually, all over the world, people give so generously, whenever there's a need that arises, I mean, our, our Jewish missionary that we support will be here hopefully next month, we're still working out, he was supposed to be here in March, uh, obviously the corona kept him away, because there were no airplanes, but you know, it's like a couple of years ago when he was trying to get to Israel, I said, guys, anything we can do to help him, he needed three grand, guess what we sent him, three grand. Praise the Lord. Why were we so generous in a moment's notice? Because we believe in the work of the ministry. We know the money belongs to the Lord, that He can print more. He's better at it than the feds. And that's hard to believe, ain't it? Because it's just money. It's just a thing. It's no more than a tool of which we operate by. But we don't worship it. So now let's look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So therefore, because of all of this, so go read the context of chapter 1 laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord's gracious. Now, let's break this down. What did it just tell us? We have to lay aside. Did it say that God's going to do it for you? No, we do it. All malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all Evil speaking. That's a lot of alls. We have to do this. We take care of this. But what should we do? We should desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow. So how are you going to grow? It's through this. No matter what you do and how you try, you will never get away from this. If you do, you will end up off. There's a movement right now. It's not a new movement. It's Marcionism, if you really want to break it down, which is back in the second century, I think. But it's, it's reared its ugly head again where we are rejecting the confines of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. They'll say that the Old Testament is really not a picture of how God was, it was just how they thought God was. But when Jesus showed up, He showed us exactly who God was, how they had it all wrong before, that He was this loving, peaceful, just wonderful guy. If you believe that, i got a bridge to sell you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now, you weren't able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able, because you're still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So what is Paul saying here? There's a distinguishing factor between Christian and non-Christian. Talking about carnality. So can somebody be born again and still be carnal? Absolutely, he just told us that. I've had people argue with me, there's no such thing as carnal Christianity, there's born again and not born again. Unfortunately, Paul didn't know that. So, he couldn't speak to them as spiritual. He had to address them as carnal, because they were just babes in Christ. I gave you milk, you really should have had solid food, but you're not able to deal with it. Still not able to deal with it. I still got to deal with you. And how do we know? What are the fruits of that? The envy, the strife, the divisions. So he's making a distinction here of how we should be acting, but how we're not. What's the underlying factor here? It's a lack of understanding the word. Were these a born-again people? Absolutely. The Corinthian church, as screwed up as it was, and it was, okay, it still operated in the gifts of the Spirit, In such a powerful way that Paul had to lay out like some parameters here. Chapters 13, 14, all of that. Like, listen guys, get a little little bit out there. So he's laying out a, a pattern for them, but these were still born again people. They just weren't acting right. Why weren't they acting right? Well, as I said before, if the enemy can get you thinking wrong, he will get you acting wrong. It's not always spiritual stuff. A lot of times it is natural stuff. How we respond in a situation. The natural mind does not respond in a financial crisis by giving more. The natural mind will tell you, I need to hoard all that I have or I may run out. You guys see what I'm saying? You following me? All right, now let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going somewhere with all this, I promise. Remind them of these sayings, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. He's rightly dividing the word of truth. I keep referencing this, I haven't read it yet. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. In other words, shut your mouth with all the nonsense. Quit focusing on that. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now let's leave this up here for just a minute. Go back one for me. We see these two names here, okay? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Great names. I think uh, Kyle, Maddie, maybe the next baby. Just a, just a thought. But he's, he's getting on, he's letting Timothy know. Their words, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no prophets, the ruin of the hearers. Present yourself approved to God. How do we do that? Rightly divide the word. Okay? Now, shun profane idol babblings, we get that. Why? Because they increase to more ungodliness. Their message will spread like cancer. Okay, so this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that's gone on. Their message, he's specifically referencing something here to Timothy. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of what sort? The sort that he's referencing in the context here. Go to the next one. They have strayed concerning the truth. To stray from something means at one point you lived by something. I believe this, but now I'm over here. They have strayed from what? The truth. What is the central part that locks every part of the armor in? It's the truth. It's that belt of truth. What were they straying from? They're saying that the resurrection is already past. What resurrection are we talking about? Ultimately, the raising of the dead in Christ at the, um, the blowing of the trumpet. The rapture, all this kind of stuff. Saying this has already happened. As a result of their teaching, they overthrew the faith of some. So these were people, in putting it in our vernacular, who were in the church, and they were known as solid leaders at one point. I mean, I would assume. I am making an assumption there. And began to teach falsehoods. And as a result of that, their followers have now strayed away. You guys follow me on that? You see how that works? That's what Paul's telling Timothy teach against this stuff. How did that happen? If you stray away from the foundation of truth, you will eventually get off kilter. You could be right at one point in life. You may be right on certain subjects. But if we don't consistently go back to the Word where we get our basis of truth, we will end up off base. You guys guys with me? Everybody there? Okay. All right. I don't want to leave anybody behind. Now, As we've been talking about this, um, I've given you guys some examples. I want to give you this again. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 4. Now, I have read this and I have done this, but I want everybody on the same page. Because I want to show you something here. Matthew chapter 4, this is the temptation of Jesus. Ultimately, what's happening here is if you could say it in this way. Jesus is spiritually undoing three of the mistakes that the Israelites made as they were traveling through the wilderness. And you'll see that in his response if you go read them. Uh, The verses he quotes, you will see what's going on there. So he's tempted in the same way that they were, yet without sin, he got it right where they got it wrong, okay? We're not going to do all of that today because we don't have time. We could make time if you all don't want to go home, but I didn't figure that was the case. I know you all are anxious to get into that jerky, so I'm going to let you. Let's start at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and He was tempted by the devil. And when He had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward He was hungry. Now when the tempter came to Him, He said... Now, let's stop there. Who's the tempter? It will tell us here in a moment Is Satan. Who was the tempter in the beginning? It was Satan. Alright? Who is always the tempter? It's Satan. Why in the millennial reign is there no sin? Because Satan is locked up. There's no tempter. Why is he released? Because the people that come to Christ... I've never had the opportunity to reject him. That's why the tree of the knowledge and good and evil is there. They gave, he gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to go against him. It's not love if it's forced. All right, that's sidebar. So, when the tempter came, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, he said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, let's stop for a moment. Jesus' response to the temptation was simple. came back to him with the word no the word says now go read the context of that the temptation the the israelites what they're they're crying for is they have no food manna is sent okay it's the bread of life but what it never mentions a temptation a tempter they're just crying out against god it's kind of like maybe that's underlying in the ranks if you will and so here he's got his simple response left it at that look at the next one this is interesting Then the devil took him up into the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he quotes two verses. The enemy came to Jesus and quoted Scripture to him. I think it's Psalm 91, if I remember right. Psalm 91, 92, something like that. Jesus' response, it is written again, you should not tempt the Lord your God. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. He tempted him with something fleshly, food. He's hungry, it's 40 days. Listen, we'd all be hungry, right? 40 minutes. Some of y'all are hungry right now. I mean, so that one makes sense. But what he tempted him with is a, I guess it would be something that would feel good to the flesh, so to speak, prove yourself, is what he's saying, but then he justifies it by using the Bible. And Jesus' response was to do what? Rightly divide the word of truth. That means that when somebody quotes Scripture to you, that does not mean that that is how that Scripture was written. This happens all the time. It also doesn't mean that as you're having your Bible time and you're reading a verse and you get this, I blah, I know what this means. That doesn't mean that it's from God. That doesn't mean your interpretation of that Scripture is not coming from the enemy. We see Him use it here as a weapon. That's why rightly dividing it is crucial. That is why separating yourself from the body is a bad idea. Because if you come up with this new revelation and you have nobody to bounce it against, you may just assume that you're right. It could lead you on the same path of where they teach that the resurrection's already happened and lead others astray. You guys follow me on that? I want you to see that. Because a lot of times we don't think of it like this. Now, look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Always responded with the word. Why don't we do that? How come that is not our response? When sickness comes, our response should be what the word says. When the pandemic strikes, our response should be what the word said. When the riots hit, our response should be what the word said. In all cases, having a biblical worldview, should be our response. Every time. Unfortunately it's not. Unfortunately we got a lot of ideas out there, some of them good, some of them bad. Some of them are mixed with a little bit of truth. Is what the enemy quoted correct? I mean is that the word? Of course it is. It absolutely is the word. But just because something's quoted doesn't mean that it's true. So I'm going to show you how we put this into practice today. All right, I got asked about this last week. I brought up everybody's favorite Bible verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We all heard it. We all love it. Judge not that you be not judged. Some of y'all are judging me right now. That tells you to knock it off. Judge not that you be not judged. I'm sorry, uh, premarital sex is a bad idea. Don't you judge me. That's that's how we use this. It's amazing that this verse gets quoted more by non Christians than it does Christians. The implication is, is that, listen, I come to God in my own way. Don't you judge me and tell me that I am wrong. You must embrace me in the way that I'm created. Are we not all God's children? God created us in his image, and if I am this way, this must be the very image of God himself. I've seen some of you. Let's hope that's not true. I mean, the thing is, guys, is that this verse gets thrown around, and it gets cherry-picked. But here's the question. Is that not the Word? It is. Can't argue. Matthew 7, verse 1. The question comes down to, who wrote it? Matthew. It's the words of Christ written down. Okay, what did He mean by it? In other words, we have to look at the context and break this down to see what it is. Because basically, the interpretation of this verse has become that we cannot call anybody out for any sin or anything. We must embrace them in whatever lifestyle they happen to choose to love and want to be. Because that's what Jesus did. He loved people just the way they were. Remember, when the woman was caught in adultery, he said, let you, who is without sin, cast the first stone. According to this, we've got to quit throwing stones, church. We're throwing too many of them. Unless that's not what it means. So let's look at this. So as I told you, at a minimum, anytime you don't read a Bible verse, read 20 before, 20 after. It'll usually give you a pretty good idea. We're going to go back to chapter 5. We're going to break this down because the question is, or at least the statement being, is that Jesus is telling us not to judge anybody. So, let's see if Jesus was judgmental. I'll let you in on a little secret. He was. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We're start in verse 43. This is the Beatitudes. We're not going to read them all. We're going to read a little bit. It says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. "...that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust." Okay, does anybody here have an enemy, per se? Well, we must, all of us do. We have somebody that has done something against us. He says that we are to love them, but in order for them to be an enemy, we must have judged something that they have done, or said, or whatever. Okay? That doesn't mean that we're right, but that is the case. But he also makes a statement here. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. Did Jesus make a judgment of evil versus good? Some people are evil. They must be. He said it. Otherwise, he'd just say, hey, you're all good, and the sun rises on all of us equally. Obviously, he's making a distinction. How about the just and the unjust? The righteous and the unrighteous is another way you could say that. So there is a distinction there. There is something that has made these people just and something else that has made these people unjust. Now, he doesn't tell us what it is specifically here, but he says that there is a distinction. Is that not a judgment that has been made? If I am judging something and I say, yes, this is righteous, I have made a judgment call on it. You guys see that? That is what Jesus is doing. He's making a distinction. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when they do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Now, if he is calling somebody a hypocrite and he is referencing specific people here these people that do these things in the temple, is he not judgment, judging them, saying that they're perceiving themselves as one thing, but deep down they're really something else. Don't misunderstand hypocrite. That does not mean to say something and do another. It means to put yourself up as something. It's, the Greek actually means just wearing a mask. You're portraying yourself as something that you are not. Because if it was uh, you know, say something and do another, well then there's a whole host of hypocrites sitting in this room. But It's really references that you are pretending to be something that you are not. Now, in order to call somebody a hypocrite, as he has done, he's ultimately referencing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. He had to judge them, yes? You guys see that. He is judging. He's judged them as hypocrites. And he says, don't do your charitable deeds and sound the trumpet as they do in the synagogue. If that was today, turn the camera off. Don't put it on Facebook. It drives me crazy when I see this. It's always amazing. You see these videos of people just doing random good deeds either with homeless or buying somebody's meal and whatever and the camera happens to catch the whole thing. It's like they got a crew following them around or something. So don't be like them. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So now he's made a distinction between you and your behavior, and the hypocrites and their behavior. Did he not just judge both groups of people? Absolutely he did. Oh, we're not done. Verse 5, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. And assuredly I say to you... They have their reward. But you, when you pray, go in your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, he just judged two different people, didn't he? You got the hypocrites telling you don't be like them, judgmental. And now he said heathens. What is a heathen? An unbeliever. There's basically two... Two groups. In this case, it's the Jews and the not-Jews. The not-Jews were heathen. They were outside of covenant unless they came into covenant and made themselves a proselyte Jew. So in other words, he's making a distinction again. He is judging a group of people. He does this a whole lot. Let's keep going. Therefore, do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows the things that you have need before you ask. Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, anybody recite that growing up a whole bunch? I'm sure you did. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like who? Them lousy hypocrites. With a sad countenance, they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who is in the secret will reward you openly. uh, How we would say that today is when you're fasting, take a shower. Okay? Don't look sad. Don't look so hungry. Don't stare at my cupcake. All right? I mean, so, but do you guys see this? This is mild. I'm showing you the context of it, but he is making a clear judgment between the good and the bad. Don't be like these people. All right? It's like for you guys here in Rockport, when you're raising your kids, listen, you guys can do anything you want in life. All I ask is don't be like those folks across the river. Please. You know what we did across the river? We forgot y'all existed. That's what we did. But we're here now. Hallelujah. So... Now, that is chapter 5, or part of chapter 5, chapter 6. Now let's get into chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, that's ironic from a man who just judged a whole slew of people, right? So it can't mean, don't make a distinction between good and bad. It cannot mean that. Because that doesn't make sense. Or he's schizophrenic. Verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Okay, so it seems like he is dealing with hypocrisy here. Is he not? In other words, don't go deal with everybody else's problem before you start at home. Verse 3, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but not consider the plank in your own eye? Uh Uh-oh. Now, did Jesus just say something here? In other words... They have a speck and you have a plank. And you're getting on to them about your, their speck, but you're not dealing with your plank. A little hypocritical, if you will. But did he say that the speck didn't exist? No. He's judging, yeah, there's a speck there. So, as he will say, or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, the plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, stop there. So, get your problems taken care of, and then go and judge the speck and deal with it. But take care of home first. So, he's dealing with both, he is judging all these people. Very judgmental. Verse six, it gets really ugly here. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and, turn a, and tear you into pieces. Now, he's referencing people to dogs and swine. This is not good. Because if we do that, we get in trouble. To a Jewish man, swine is unclean. It is bad. But he is referencing, don't give what is holy, what belongs to God, to the dogs. You remember what he said to that one woman that came to him? He said, this is for the children, not for the dogs. Remember when he said that? And she has a great counter argument. He's pretty judgmental here. Let's go down to chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Did he not just call them evil? He just judged them, didn't he? Let's go to verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, but because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus, you judgmental piece of junk. Don't you know that all roads lead to God? He just said like, hey, there's a wide open gate that's going to lead to destruction. A bunch of you idiots are going to walk right through it. But the road that leads to life is extremely narrow, and unfortunately most of you guys are going to miss it. Pretty judgmental. Because he's judging that there is a right way and a wrong way. You guys see that? Let's go on. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets. If I claim to be a prophet, how would you know if I'm not? Wouldn't take very long, would it? Because I would say something that didn't come to fruition, but if you were to call me a false prophet, are you not judging me? He's telling to watch out for these people. He's judging them. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. If we're judging somebody by their fruits, are we not judging them? In other words, the the growth, the reaction, the things that happen. I got a peach tree that's half dead. I don't like that half. I like the other half. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistle? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You could say it another way. Therefore, by their actions, by their deeds, by their words, you will know them. So thus, you must judge their actions, you must judge their words, you must judge their deeds to see if what they say is true. False prophet is not what most people think it. It's not somebody who gets a word from the Lord and is incorrect. That's somebody who prophesied falsely. A false prophet, according to Jesus, is somebody who knows they are not a representative of God. And inside is a ravenous wolf leading those astray. This is not somebody who's maybe a little off on their theology. And maybe think they heard from God and were wrong. Those things can be corrected. This is intentional. But how do you know the difference? How do you know that every TV preacher isn't just trying to take up an offering? Judge it by the fruits, not what they tell you. I mean, it, it, just because they're on TV doesn't make them true, and also doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't make them bad. It's a platform that is used by some people good, some people bad. How do you know the difference? You've got to judge it. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You mean there's some that are getting in and some that aren't? And somebody's got to judge them to determine who's doing what? Because they thought they were okay. They weren't. Verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house. It didn't fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was his fall. So you got a distinction of two groups of people. Those who hear the word and do it, and those who hear the word and don't. And he's judging between the two. One is wise and one is foolish. Which one is you? Which one is us? You see, this is we're dealing with spiritual things. But it's not just spiritual things. Remember, according to Hebrews 5, that when we look at this, that those who had their senses exercised know both good and evil. We'll read that here in a minute. There's a distinction there. In other words, we are now equipped and able to make a distinction between good and bad, right and wrong. And ultimately, what does it come to? It comes to the Word. We use it as our filter of everything that goes through. So that means theological statements must go through the Word. Words from the Lord must go through the Word. Crisis in America must go through the Word. Our response to anything happening must be grounded in Scripture. All of it. Now, let me give you a couple of examples, some memes that go around. I love memes. If you don't know, and if you don't follow me on Facebook, you should because my meme game is strong. They are hilarious. I'm on it. Jared constantly sends me dad jokes. They're not funny. He tries, but they're not funny. They're not, but these memes are good. But these are a couple that went around, and I could not believe the number of Christians that I saw that would share these thinking that they're doing good. Here's the first one, Okay. How deep is the mud? Well, it depends on who you ask. Because we all grew through the same stuff differently. You got two dogs there. One's obviously bigger than the other. How deep is the mud? Well, it just depends. It all depends on how you respond to it, how you go through it. Because for some people, it's a lot harder than it is for others. Right? Is that statement true? Now, some of you are refusing to make eye contact with me right now. And I get that because you know I'm always setting you up. But here's the question. How do we know how deep the mud is? Well, I'm going to walk up here. Look at me getting my cardio in today. All right. Here's the line on the mud. So it's, it's that tall. That's how deep the mud is. It's that deep. Are you getting this, Ashley? It's, it's, it's just that deep, Ash. It's all not any deeper than that. What is irrelevant to answering the question of how deep the mud is? How big the dog is? Right? If you drive a 1976 Pinto down a mud road, or you drive a 1976 Ford F-250 that's souped up with big mud tires on it, which one's making it to the end of the road? Not the Pinto. In fact, the pinto may not have made it down the highway to get to the road. I I mean, the mud is this deep. How you trudge through it is irrelevant to the question. You guys see that? So what did we just do? Well, we used logic and philosophy. But we see this stuff out there all the time. And this is getting put a Christian spin on it. Because we both may face the same trials. But how we respond to them may be different. The question is, is if we are in the Word and we know what it says and we live our lives by it, does it make any difference, the trial that comes against you? No, your response is always the same. The enemy comes and says, did God really say? Our response is, oh, yeah, he did. I mean, we saw this firsthand, right? We saw it firsthand. Listen, most of us would struggle to go through what they went through with that accident and everything like that. But they stood on the Word. They put into practice all the things that they had learned. And when the trial came, they were armored up. They were ready. Doesn't mean it was fun. The mud sucks. It's not fun. But they were equipped. Now they come through the other side. Now they got a story to tell. And God is more glorified in their life than before. You guys see how we did this? This wasn't hard, was it? No. Y'all got it. You guys might make eye contact with me on the next one. Let's let's go up to the next one. Here we go. This is one of the realest things I've read. Six or nine, just because you are right does not mean I am wrong. Just you haven't seen life from my side because it's both a six and a nine at the same time. Is that true? You know the answer is no now by default, but can you break it down is the question because I wouldn't be talking about it. Well, here's the thing. Does it make any difference, his perspective or his perspective on what the number is? Does the number change because of the perspective of which you were looking at it? Of course not. What do we have to ask? Well, who's the dude that put the number down? Let's ask him what it is. Can you have two... Opposing truth. Just because you are right does not mean that I am wrong. Is that logically possible? You guys are scared to death to nod or anything. It's not subjective. Your opinion is irrelevant, it doesn't change what really is true. I had a high school student, I was working at a high school out in Hastings, and uh, she made a comment, we're talking about truth being objective, there being a standard in all things. And so she said, no, I don't know, because you know, truth changes all the time. It's like in science, we make new discoveries. I said, well, but just because we made a new discovery, doesn't, mean, doesn't that mean that was the truth the whole time when we were wrong before? And she's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I know teenagers today don't get told they're wrong ever, but it happens. You see, your side of life is absolutely irrelevant to what the truth is. That's why Bible studies today are so screwed up. You go around, you read a couple of verses, and you'd be like, what does that mean to you? Oh, that's nice. What does that mean to you? Oh, that's lovely. I don't care what it means to you. I care what does it mean. What is he conveying? We have to divide the word of truth. We have to define and and divide every good thought from a bad thought. This is stupid. The mud one at least had a prayer. This is just plain stupid. Two plus two is four. No, it's not. It's five because I feel like it is. That's just plain stupid. Right? I mean, but that's the world we live in today. So we read these things. We see these things, but we don't look at them from a biblical worldview. Guys, don't cast your brain in because you're a Christian. God gave it to you for a reason. We're praying He'll give you a few more. I mean, but this is the stuff that we deal with day in and day out. We get ideas that are thrown out there, but we never process them. Now, I know these are kind of dumb examples, but this is just just some of the few things that are going on out there. That these are some of the things that when we are faced with this crisis, we have to know how to respond in a biblical manner. Uh, Ultimately, is where we go. Look at Ephesians 5. We read this before. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers and need someone to teach you again the first principle of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is a babe. Solid food belongs to those who are full foolish, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Listen, I won't argue that some of this stuff, when you've never thought this through, thought through your worldview and what you think, might be a little hard to piece piece together. And I won't argue the fact that when a crisis hit, and we've had a few of them here uh, recently, that maybe piercing through that and thinking it through and coming to the right conclusion is not hard. But the truth is is that when we get punched in the mouth, we find out where we are. And America's getting punched time and time again. But where do we fall as a Christian-believing body? We always go to the work. I don't care what the government says. I know most of us in here probably like Trump in one way or another. Well, let me rephrase that. We're voting for the guy. We may not like the guy. I mean, I wouldn't play golf with him. Well, I might. He plays on some pretty nice courses. And if he's buying, I might go play. (laughs) Because I can lose golf balls anywhere in America, so just take me with you. But, But that doesn't mean that everything he says is from the mouth of God. And just because... We think He might be on our side. doesn't mean everything He says is something we should do. You guys follow me on this? We have to be able to discern this stuff. Guys, I could go through, besides Matthew 7, we could go through all sorts of verses. We could look at Romans 13. We could look at all the verses. You know, Matthew 18, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am, in the midst of them. It's like, dang it, I was at home by myself, I was going to pray, but Jesus won't come. Man. I mean, what if there's four? He said two or three. What if my whole family's there? Like, duh. That's obviously not what that means. Let me give you another one. I didn't even put this in the notes. This is fun. Jeremiah 29. Get your Bibles out. Did you guys bring a Bible? If you didn't, shame on you. Jeremiah 29. This is one of my favorite ones. These are always on pillows. You walk into somebody's house. It's hanging there. Oops, I went too far. Hey, by the way, just so you know, just out of coincidence, Matthew 7 in my Bible got ripped out on accident. I know most churches do that anyway, but it was an accident. A little ironic. Jeremiah 29. I could quote it here. Get there. My pages are starting to stick together. Here we go. You ready? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. We Christians, we read this verse and we're like, oh, he thinks good thoughts of me. He's given me a future and a hope. And the question comes back to, well, who wrote it? Jeremiah. And who is it written to? Let's look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. In other words, if you were not a part of the 70 year of Babylonian captivity, thus does not apply to you. Now, there is a spiritual principle there, certainly. But how about we start with the proper context of the verse... To see what's going on. He's making a promise to His covenant people. I haven't forgot about you guys. You're going through this for a reason. Remember, it was the land covenants that they did not keep. I'm give, this, is, this is judgment on you, but when you come out, I've not forgotten you. There will be a time of hope. You guys see that? I know that's a crazy example. Does misusing Jeremiah 29 make you like a terrible person? Of course not. Is it going to lead you in a ther- theologically unsound place? Probably not. But how about we just try to use it right the first time? You see, that's the thing, guys, is this word is what divides our thoughts from God's thoughts, from the enemy's temptations and his thoughts. We always go back to the word, Ephesians 4, verse 10. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, why did he give those five, those five things that actually says pastors that are teachers, so it would probably be four things? For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? Look around. It's you all. Why do you give them? Equip you for the work of the ministry. What are we talking about? Being equipped. Why am I here? To equip you. Does that mean I have all the answers? No, of course not. But I have a God-given ability that He has given me and a gifting to teach you and to grow with you. So it's for the work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ to win. We all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man that we should measure of the, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That means there's good doctrine and there's bad doctrine. There are good thoughts, there are bad thoughts. There are good memes, and there are bad ones. Now watch what it says, that we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the craft, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth to the body for the edifying of itself in love. There's a bunch there, but remember, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it separates joints and marrow, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. coming together. It's the Word that connects us. But what do we do? We grow up in all things, and we speak the truth in love. In other words, we speak the truth from a position of I want you to see this because you need to come to Christ. It's not because I hate you. It's not because I want you to feel bad about yourself. It's because you are not right with God, and I want you to be. I want you to understand the way that is there. So I'm not coming against you, and I'm not condemning you, but I am judging your works, and I am judging your words, and I am judging your fruit as Scripture has told me to. That is why I'm sharing this. That is why we have to be always telling the truth out of love. Men, that is why when your wife puts on a new pair of pants and says, does this make my butt look big? Your response must be, of course not baby, you're amazing. (laughs) Listen, there is a fine line that we do not cross, just so you know. No, I... Obviously, I'm kidding. Guys, this is the thing, is that we're in a culture of not hurting feelings and not suppressing anything, and we just, we just want to love everybody. Love tells the truth. I do not hate somebody enough to leave them in a position of sin separated from God without me at least attempting to intervene. It doesn't mean I'll be successful, but I will attempt it. I don't hate anybody that much. If we are to love God and to love people, then when we gather together, we go to God and we worship Him, we're preparing, we're equipped, we're being built up and to be ready to be sent out. And if we're loving people, then we are sharing the truth of the gospel, even when it's unpopular, even when we're talking about race issues, even when we're talking about pandemics, even when we're talking about all the other stuff that is going on around the country today. We will always stand back on the word and what is true. Your opinion is irrelevant if it is not grounded in truth. So it doesn't matter how deep the mud is, and it doesn't matter if you think it's a six or you think it's a nine. All that matters is what God has said. Because I don't care how deep the mud is, you will come through it.